we're all apprentices in a craft in which none of us will ever become a master. I don't care who you are, how long you've coached, whether you've been in the NFL or MLB or NBA for 25 years, whether you've been at the collegiate level for 40 years, whether you've own your own business and you and you've done a really good job training and developing athletes on the private side none of us are masters at what we do sports science strength and conditioning high performance coaching welcome to the decoding excellence show Today's episode is brought to you by Baller Performance, the makers of the Nordboard. If you haven't checked out the website yet, I highly suggest you head over there now. The Nordboard is a revolutionary performance technology that allows you as a practitioner to assess the hamstring strengths of your athletes you're working with. Whether it's rehabilitation, return to play, or performance testing, Baller Performance has the tools you need. Today on the show, I talk with author and coach Brett Bartholomew. Brett is the co-founder of Unbreakable Performance and also the author of Conscious Coaching, a book that's due out March 11th, 2017. In the show today, we discuss everything from buy-in, influence, communication, human behavior, emotional intelligence. We get into discussing what the four components of what it takes to be a conscious coach. We dive into the ideal of how to improve your buy-in, just the basics of social intelligence, and how to develop relationships and and how that's built with time. This is a wide-ranging conversation that should have immediate impact with your coaching abilities. I definitely believe you do not want to miss this show, and I look forward to hearing the response from you on social media. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Brett Bartholomew. Brett, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Appreciate it. Hey, I am just so excited to finally uh, get you on the line and have an opportunity to not only steal an hour of your day, which I only imagine that you have some busy days ahead of you, but it's been uh, it's been nice to finally connect with you. How are things out in uh, L.A. for you? Yeah, pretty crazy. Um, no, absolutely great to connect. L.A. is... L.A., as you can imagine, L.A. is a it's a fantastic town. There's there's a litany of athletes out here and also unique opportunities that always present themselves. But that also comes with a a unique amount of obstacles. Right. So the idea of, again, just drawn from my past experience in the team setting where you have relatively clean scheduling and, and you can do some different things out here to survive in California and especially LA, you have to be adaptable. You know, whether you're running a a 6 a.m. group, a 9 a.m. group, I've learned that you basically have to kind of put it in bed, so to speak, a a 30 minute leeway window because of you never know what the traffic's going to be. You never know if there's a movie filming. You kind of never really know what's going on out here in terms of uh, until it's already happened. So LA is fun. It keeps you on your toes and um, the weather's always good. So you can't complain about that especially going from Phoenix, which is good weather by all accounts. But, you know, a Midwest guy, I only imagine you're getting away from the negative 10 degree uh, winters at this point that we've uh, sort of survived through over the last couple months here in, in Kansas. Yeah, but it's kind of it's funny, right? Like as a as a Midwest guy also, right? It, the weather's never enough to keep me in one place. I've lived in places. I mean, this is my ninth state. And I'm fine coaching in the snow. I'm fine coaching in the sun, what have you. It just happens to be nice that, you know, when you do have to 
do some field work or anything like that, it's never a negative thing to feel the sun on your skin and, and know that you're actually getting your own vitamin D, vitamin D allotment, especially because us as coaches can spend so much time in the weight room in the facility that you, you see everybody else come in from outside, everybody else spend a good amount of time outside. And in Phoenix, you know, we'd coach you know, pretty much any group that you coach, you spend a good amount out there because that was a big part of the facility. It was ingrained. Whereas out here, oftentimes I have to split up my, my days from the field work days, the strength training days and what we do just because of location issues. So it's not every day I get to go outside and coach on the turf. I may hit that three, three days, three or four days, one week. And then the next week we may only be able to get out there three because you also have to deal with uh, local facilities out here or high schools. For example, one of the schools I do a lot of our speed and agility training and what have you, it's a high school, right? And it's perfect facility, but there's certain times a day that you can get on the field unless you want to pay the school just a, a boatload of money, right? So you have to get creative with a lot of your strategies with integration, but you make it work. Adaptability is probably the, the key to anyone uh, as far as from a strength conditioning perspective, especially as schedules change so often. The reason I wanted to have you on is because you're, you're up to a couple of different things and, uh, and we're going to get into the neck of it and start talking a little bit about maybe some of the, the changes from going uh, from Phoenix to LA and what your role and, and what you're doing with Unbreakable out there. But for those that are, maybe this is the first podcast that they're listening to, or they're a 18 year old high schooler. Uh, that's interested in strength conditioning and just started getting into it. I'd love to hear in your own words, kind of your background. Tell the story that is Brett Bartholomew. Yeah, sure. So my background started really on uh, with athletes performance after I had graduated from college. So initially I got my undergraduate degree in kinesiology at, at Kansas State. I grew up in Nebraska. So strength and conditioning was always a very strong interest of mine. I just really never knew how to get into it. I remember asking my advisor how I could start training athletes when I was a freshman. And the irony is at the time, he, he told me about this thing that was becoming really popular and poised to blow up in the future and that I should get into called CrossFit. And uh, I remember I'm like, well, that's not really my style. You know, and it, I looked into it as a freshman in college and it just didn't seem like anything that was along the lines of what I wanted to do. But uh, you know, he was a well-meaning guy and, and just probably wasn't aware of the volunteer opportunities that existed uh, that, that we know are a part of strength and conditioning, and, and neither was I. So it wasn't really until my junior or senior year that I found out about companies like Athletes Performance or internships at different universities because I just never really had any friends in the field or had gone that route. So after college, I moved to Pensacola, Florida, down at the Andrews Institute and did an internship there working with uh, pro athletes, high school athletes. Uh, military. Uh, you'd get a lot of folks that came over from the Andrews Institute that were looking for reintegration back into performance training after surgery or after being essentially put back together. Uh, after that, I wanted experience in the team setting. So I volunteered at the University of Nebraska with their football team and uh, did a six-month off-season uh, volunteer role there. And time came when that ended. They actually needed to fill that role with a minority position uh, but the coaches were nice enough to connect me with a colleague at Southern Illinois. So I got a graduate assistant position at Southern Illinois, where I went on to get my master's degree uh, in exercise science with an emphasis on motor learning and attentional focus. So to be a bit more specific there, attentional focus is, is essentially boiled down to how just how much what we say matters when coaching. So you look at 
external and internal cueing and the effects that has on people either psychologically, physiologically, or both, uh, which put uh, a, a strong, I would say a strong kind of cue in there for what would become my later work with the book that I'm uh, I'm finishing up, Conscious Coaching Now, just looking at how, how unique it is that you get that manifestation when you're able to capitalize on both the physiological and psychological aspects of coaching, right? As opposed to just one or the other, or just assuming that our athletes' minds go where they where we tell them to go, because that's not the case. Now, when I was at Southern Illinois, I served as the head strength coach for uh, six to eight Olympic sports, depending on the year that I was there, and then an assistant for uh, football and basketball. So that was a, a great experience for me, because it was 13 sports under one roof. And uh, as you know, all too well that that not only challenges you from a programming standpoint but also an implementation standpoint and administrative standpoint so that was a really uh, unique time in my life where i felt like okay I'd, I'd gotten some good team experience thus far and gotten a sense of the private sector and once i graduated i put my name out there for opportunities in both realms um so ended up getting an opportunity to go back down to athletes performance in pensacola and started taking over and 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 working more hand in hand with the special forces and military endeavors there. So I'd work with you know five or six other coaches and a host of therapists throughout the company. We'd go to different bases, whether it's for Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, or folks coming in in-house. And we'd try to educate them on how to train more intelligently. No different than a college freshman, so to speak. You'd get these guys that you know live on energy drinks and uppers and their body is riddled with injuries and you're trying to teach them the concept of good rest periods and intelligent program design, and all they want to do is go, 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 right? Their bodies are riddled not only from war, but from methods such as CrossFit and other things that, that match the intensity of their mindset and their job. So that was really interesting because, you know, at the time I was 24, 25, and I'm having to look at Navy SEALs in the eye and tell them, hey, I know these workouts seem hard, but they're not as strategic as you'd think. And, you know, no offense to CrossFit, but for military servicemen and women, it's not the best option when they have to, you know, be prepared at all times for deployment or any number of tasks to not know where their body's physiological state is. And I'm having to try to tell these guys, slow down, foam roll, understand the importance of recovery, sleep. And I'll never forget the first time that a guy raised his hand and he goes, hey, kid, what you're saying is nice and all, but keep in mind that we run towards bullets, not away from them. And it became really clear to me that I had to speak in a different language in order to get these guys to care about uh, this message and to care about understanding the importance of good training. And that ended up serving me well as I eventually moved on to the Phoenix location at API where I'd spearhead the pro sports side of things, specifically football, and then as a lead coach with the Major League Baseball side as well. So didn't really do the combine piece. That's admittedly not, not a huge passion of mine. Uh, I'm a sucker for longer-term programming and I just, I think maybe a little bit of my Midwest mindset is I like developing longer term relationships with guys. So not to take anything away from anybody that does do combine work or what have you, it just wasn't my, my cup of tea. So I worked primarily with NFL veterans that were in the off season. And so they'd come in anywhere from late January or early February and start phase one of their off season programming. Eventually, that would lead to phase two, which was OTA prep, where it would be my primary goal to intensify the programming, uh, get them more calloused, so to speak, from a physiological standpoint to, to send back to their team strength coaches at a higher state of preparation. 
uh, especially because of all the limitations the CBA has. And then, you know, a good percentage of them would come back or a different crop entirely would come back uh, in July for training camp preparation. So bit of a misnomer that coaches in the private sector don't program for more than two or three weeks as you know, that that would oftentimes be anywhere from a, uh, a 12 to 16 week process and beyond if they were free agents. You know, when when we'd work with free agents, I'd end up coaching guys and writing programs for an entire 12 month cycle. And you, these guys would basically have to be prepared at any time. You'd have to make sure and, and use a wide variety of modalities so that one, you kept them at, you know, I'm not gonna use the word peak, but at a high level of physical preparation, but that if they got a call on a Monday from a team to go try out, they weren't gassed. And that was valuable in its own right too, right? Because all the discussions you have about which periodization model's best, what are you doing for monitoring all these pieces, it taught me that I had to get out of my, kind of my bias real quick, whatever model periodization I was following at the time, which was, you know, at the time was just, you know, plain, plain old simple linear periodization because, you know, elite athletes doesn't mean that they're, they're elite trainees. But I had to use concepts of modified conjugate, undulating. I mean, all these things are the same thing. I had to use concepts of uh, APRE. I had to use all these different modalities because I didn't have clean situations where guys were just getting ready for this time of year, unless it was with an MMA fighter that I was working with. And we knew specifically when fight night was. But to that standpoint, and sorry to be verbose here, uh, to that standpoint, you wouldn't even have control over their program in entirety there due to the fact that their fight team would alter the schedule. And that's something I, I actually worked on a chapter that's finishing up with Greg Hoff and, and uh, Lachlan James on this right now about the realities of training mixed martial arts athletes where a lot of people will say, yeah, here's an eight to 12 week program. That doesn't work in, in fighting. And that doesn't work in more sports than most people care to admit because you just have too many variables, too many adjustments. And the best programs, I learned this as a graduate assistant, I'd lay everything out as cleanly as I could in Excel only to find out that I'd have to scratch a good percentage of it out with pen and start again. And I used to think that was a failure on my part if I didn't consider every variable. And then what you realize is, no, the best coaches always adapt. Um, but that that is kind of a background not only of kind of experiential type things uh, in those realms, but also I think what really contributed to my mindset today, my absolute disdain for absolutist type nomenclature statements, people that kind of get on the high horse about what's wrong or what's right. I, I think the more absolutist terms or the more contentious people try to make things, the more they really kind of just are hiding or masking insecurities or trying to um, gain a following of silent supporters that are kind of angry at the world. There, and there's a number of different things you touched on this that I just want to revisit. And I think the nature of this show is to explore the coach that's behind the whistle. And there's no one else that I think does what you do as good as you. And I know you're, you're probably too humble to admit it, but the, uh, the reason I wanted to have you on is I think it parallels very, uh, very close to maybe a labor of love that you've been doing and a project that you've been working on that I, uh, kind of rings true and speaks to my heart here. And that is the book, the project, Conscious Coaching, well, you've been working on for three years. And I just want to dive into this because I think this is something that isn't explored nearly enough in collegiate, professional, uh, high school strength and conditioning. And, and frankly, 
many other areas. It's very tactical, technical, X's and O's. And, and uh, I don't think we get to the heart of communication and, and just listening to your background at SIU and your major attentional focus and maybe the genesis for your passion and, and uh, your drive to improve communication and, and human behavior. I'd love to hear from you as we sort of dive down this rabbit hole for the next uh, 20, 30 minutes or so. What is conscious coaching and why is it so important in this era, this day that we live in now? Yeah, um, I think simply put, conscious coaching is just another way of saying that, you know, the balanced view on things as it pertains to the importance of the physiological aspects of of elite development, the psychological aspects of it, and the cultural aspects, which of course comprises behavioral as well within those domains, is best. And the idea for the term just came from two points. One, people use the term master coach a lot. And I say within the book that I think Hemingway says it best. And, you know, we're all apprentices in a craft in which none of us will ever become a master. I don't care who you are, how long you've coached, whether you've been in the NFL or MLB or NBA for 25 years, whether you've been at the collegiate level for 40 years, whether you own your own business and, you, and you've done a really good job training and developing athletes on the private side, none of us are masters at what we do because we're always going to encounter situations that make us have to adjust, go back to the drawing board and, and alter our approach. And that by nature is, is you know, you can't have in order to have mastery at essentially what is the skill of adapting, you have to be conscious of all the variables and all the options that exist. So conscious coaching became a term of saying, hey, don't try to be a master coach, try to be a conscious coach, like have a 360 degree awareness of everything. See the big picture, be able to balance the science and the art of coaching and understand that all the technical material as it pertains to our physiology, the biomechanics, everything, that matters incredibly, right? But you also have to be comfortable adapting it to give an athlete or group of athletes needs. And I think it just happened to coincide well with one, where our society and where our culture is at right now, everything is so grandiose. Everything is so absolutist. Everything is so uh, this way's best, that way's wrong. And, and not only that, but it's become sexy to be those things. And I, I think you've lost, and, and you're seeing it in our profession as well, where you have a lot of people that can spout off, you know, all the terminology they need to, they can write a program that, that's fairly well done and periodized long term and has all the, you know, classic modalities of multi-joint exercise that are multi-planar, right, all, all these pieces in there. But then you put them on a floor and tell them to interact with a group of athletes and they struggle and they struggle mightily. Or if they're not struggling, they have a clipboard in front of their face the entire time. That thing, is, that is just as bad as the coach or guru out there that's sitting there spouting about motivational or inspirational nonsense. And when you ask them about what, you know, what their periodization strategy is, they just look at you like they're crazy. You're crazy and say, all we do is work. And that sounds funny, but I've had that experience. I go into visit a facility. A guy looked and said, man, like periodization, we don't mess with that. All we do is work. And it just seems like there's two ends of the spectrum here that I, I don't understand how it's got that way. I mean, you see it on the questions in social media. Somebody will say, hey, do you like X or Y? And I'm like, well, both. It depends, right? Like what research What research do you suggest I should read to learn more about uh, the nuances of agility, right? Or tissue, t uh, tissue tolerance or, um, you know, if I want to do velocity-based training, what's best? Well, I can't just give you one article and then you're going to go know everything you can. You've got to implement it. 
you've got to talk to your athletes about it. You've got to do it yourself on your own training. But I, I think we just have people, Adam, and, and probably to consolidate this, I say it's an issue between exposure and experience. Exposure comes down to subjecting yourself to an influencing event, right? So studying something, observing something, whereas experience is direct participation with an influencing event. So that's leading, directing, managing, actually interacting, like being within that. And there's, we have, right now, the world of coaching has an exposure issue more than we have an experience issue. I, that's probably how I could consolidate that. As I was browsing through your website and I was kind of researching some topics uh, related to this book, you, you touched on it already. You talked about influence. You've talked uh, about the, nece- the, the need for better communication. Why do you think we're at this point right now where we have this imbalance? Yeah, this is one where I feel, you know, usually I'll try to think of an answer. I'll, I'll say, well, you know, I'm not sure any piece like this. This one to me is pretty straightforward. And I'd love to know if you agree or disagree because this is your show and I know I'm the guest, but, you know, you have tremendous insight and, uh, you know, especially on this topic and many others. But to me, it comes down to we have an absolute lack of great mentors, or if somebody doesn't like the way that that's phrased, I would say this, we have forgotten just how important mentoring is. Because if you have a great mentor, right? Like think about when blacksmiths back in the day, when you think of the classic mentor apprentice thing, I always think of a guy coming in to watch a blacksmith work, right? From from cooling the, the steel to hammering it out, to smoothing the edges, all of that. You had somebody that taught somebody not just how to handle the tools, but also how to handle the blade. And now we have people that come in and immediately they want to see, you know, do you have gym aware? Or do you do this? Or what athletes do you work with? Or uh, what drills are we doing? They're sitting there looking at the modalities and they're not paying attention to the conversations. They're not paying attention to the silent things, right? I think Donnell Boucher in the Citadel just posted a really good thing uh, today on on Instagram. It, It just showed the team huddled around each other and it said, you know, something along the lines of what we've built is is under the lights of a thousand invisible mornings. And the equivalent of invisible mornings is those invisible interactions or what becomes an invisible action to a lot of these young coaches where they're just watching the training. They're not watching the coaching. I'll say that again. They're just watching the training. They're not watching the coaching. And that's where you start to become an issue because they think that the magic is in just they think the magic is in the the served dish as opposed to the recipe and that becomes dangerous so i think i think we need to have uh, you know better mentors and i don't think that's a matter of hey more certifications or or more of this nobody's focusing on coach development and that's a project that i'm working on right now like when i get spare time is i know that people can go to clinics and workshops and thank god for these things by the way cuz they contributed to my development People can go to all these courses and clinics and workshops where they can learn learn more about, you know, the X's and O's of of what we do. But how many talks or lectures do you actually see people give on how to develop as a coach, how to be a better communicator, how to be better at all these pieces? And and I'm not talking about those talks where people just shout out quotes, right, or or the ones that say, hey, sit and talk with your athletes and these warm and fuzzy kind of pieces. I'm talking about literally the science of how to break down relationships and what they could do. And that was a big purpose of how this book was constructed. The skeleton of the book is meant to give people a roadmap. So if you look at chapter one, 
chapter one and, and I'll release a table of contents later, either this week or next, depending when this is released. But chapter one is, is what I call maps and meanings. And that is just re-identifying certain key terms, why the term conscious coaching, uh, you know, the idea of a coaching compass and how that can lead us back down a better path of, of coach development, not just technical, tactical development. Chapter two is, is called Know Thyself to Know Thy Athletes. And that is just about how you get a lot of these coaches that come in and want to regurgitate science. But the reality is they don't even know their own coaching identity. And some of these people may not even know themselves as individuals in general. They don't know what, why did they get into this? How do they think they're going to go about spreading this message or really developing athletes aside from just the physical aspect? You know, what got you into this? How does that affect your coaching style? Kind of that classic, are you more of a John Wooden or Bobby Knight kind of thing, right? Like understand different paradigms and archetypes that exist because you can't coach, you can't coach well if you don't know what you're all about as an individual. And it dives deep there into some ideas and the tough questions for people to ask themselves. Chapter three is simply called Seek to Understand. And that chapter goes deep into uh, human nature and the science behind first impressions the science behind conflict and conflict management. And then it also goes into about, depending on which ones make the final copy, 14 to 16 different personality archetypes. So the technician, the royal, the soldier, the specialist, the politician, the novice, the leader, all names for, for athlete archetypes that I have come up with that kind of classify them. And again, not typecasting. I'm not profiling unfairly. I'm not, I make it very very well stated at the beginning of the chapter, listen, we're not, we're not trying to say that everybody is just this, or we're not trying to say that you can simply have a reductionist idea of somebody's personality and put them in a box. What I am saying is there are certain traits of behavior that go into some of these categories, and whether somebody's a mix or just one, more predominantly one of these, these are personality archetypes you'll have to deal with when on the coaching floor. And just like we need to know, you know, from jump profiling or eccentric utilization ratio, where where we need to focus our training efforts, whether it's more on the elastic reactive end or more on the max strength characteristics, we need to identify those things within personalities that we're dealing with as well if we hope to manage that group dynamic. So chapter three is the one that I think most people are, are going to really dig into. And the cool part of it, Adam, and I definitely want to get you on version two of this, is that is broken up not only into an overview of the archetype, right? So there's strengths, weaknesses, suggestions for how you can better connect or adapt to those styles. But I've also brought in 15 coaches or in some instances, even a therapist from around the world, people like Dave Poloka from the Miami Dolphins, people like David Joyce, um, people like Ron McKeefrey, Barry Solon, uh, coaches from all different avenues that have worked with a variety of populations that they all got to pick one archetype and they've told a story firsthand about how they interacted with that individual so that coaches reading this can say, okay, here are some suggestions from Brett. Here's key identifiers, but what do I do? Right? And then there's always that person that's like, well, that's not really applicable. Well, you know, not to get defensive, but good luck telling 15 coaches that are at pretty high level places in their career and have dealt with a lot of stuff that this stuff isn't real, one, or applicable to or let's just say important three, you know, because if you think you're just going to go out there and spout your nonsense of saying, hey, guys, we're working up to 90% of our 1RM today. Make sure to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, get your warm-up sets, do this, make sure to sign out that last set. We need to see it. 
and then a bunch of 18 to 20 year old kids are going to be pumped at the same level that you are to go train, right? Like that's the great, <laughs> that's the faint of ignorance, right? We think that just because we've written this perfect program, that it's not going to be done poorly or that these guys are as like today I have to squat. Like I'm doing eccentric squats in my own program. I'm excited about that because I like squatting, right? But my athletes, a fighter that I'm working with hate squatting. Like, so I've got to help this guy understand how different the development of different contractile properties can benefit him in the octagon when he's applying chokes or trying to apply leverage at different angles. And that's what this book, you know, helps people uncover is how do you speak in their language? Chapter four is uh, about constructing connections. So it's just, you know, tools, tenants, and strategies. So it's, it's listed into about 12 to 13 common mistakes that most coaches make when trying to develop trust, create good atmospheres of, you know, like kind of collaborative and cohesive engagement um, and kind of, you know, almost is made so people could essentially rip them out of the book and pop them up on the wall and have that reminder of, reminder of what not to do. Because I thought that was important to add in the book. Like if people just hear me spout about what I think it takes to be successful when in my mind, I'm not. I'm certainly no like glaring example of success, but I know what failures have helped me improve, you know, and I always think that if you're not sharing failures, then nobody should trust you anyway. So there's things that people often fail at. And then also then I break it down into uh, 13 strategies based on science, based on social science research that say, if you do these things, by and large, people will react or behave or perceive what you're saying this way. And then to close that out, Adam, chapter five, which goes back to the original question is, what are we lacking? How did we get into this situation? Chapter five is about legacy. So applying the ideas of conscious coaching to our craft and our lives, whether that's how to be better mentors, how to distance yourself from this kind of caveman, uh, you know, if you have success or you become relatively well known for something, you're a sellout in our field. If you want to provide a life for your family, you know, and, and don't just want to be on the floor 24-7 until you're 65 years old, you know, or longer, uh, you're, you're not a sellout. How we can actually be practicing strength and conditioning coaches or performance professionals and have that be the bedrock of what we do always because that authenticity is important, but still be conscious and feel okay with doing bigger things in our lives to, to actually live them and enjoy them and give back. Right. Cause I think that we're at a unique turning point in our community where, and I told you before the podcast, right. Complete transparency to the listeners. I don't feel comfortable marketing a book. I didn't feel comfortable getting on social media when I first did it because there's a voice in all of our head that says, this is wrong. This is what sellouts do. This is what gurus do. This is what people that aren't actually coaching do. When in the reality is all we're trying to do is share. Like, do writers look at that? Do writers and authors say, oh, you know what? So-and-so has written his fifth book um, and he's actually been able to help organizations or he's been able to do this. Oh, man, he's a sellout. If a lawyer makes partner, you know, do they look at that as like, oh, man, now he's got his name on the building, right? Like, he must be a really crappy lawyer and nobody strives to have their name on the building. Like, at some point, you've got to say, I'd like to coach and be on the floor day to day, but I'd also like to take a vacation with my wife. I'd also like to provide a life for my kids. And I'd also like to have an exit strategy and be coaching at 65 because I want to, not because I have to. And this is something that I'm passionate about because I've lived it at a relatively young age, right? Like I, I left the collegiate setting. It doesn't mean I wouldn't go back. It just means that I had an opportunity 
to, to get a full-time job in the private sector. I left API after six years to take a, a very big risk out here in LA um, <clears throat> to become part owner and director in a company called Unbreakable. And that was hard because four weeks later, I had an NFL opportunity, something that I had been wanting to do for a very long time. But my wife and I had already started our move and we had already accepted a job. So we came out here and decided to see it through only to have 11 months later, the place essentially get uh, get bought out and want a franchise, which is something I'm not passionate about, regardless of the money involved, and step away from that in October. So here I am in my 11th year of strength and conditioning. I've split with a business partner that I had philosophical differences with, which is a part of life. And I'm coaching athletes out of a spot here in Beverly Hills while we weigh our next options, right? And so I'm coaching five, four to six groups a day, and you know that allowed me to still be able to write the book in the evenings and do those things. And it allows me to literally sit here with my wife and say, you know what? The first move and first few moves were for development. The second one was for experience, kind of like we wanted to get the, the idea of what it took to run, run a business. And, and, and not only that, lead a staff of about 13 people and, and help from a managerial standpoint. This next move is about us. We want to have a kid. We want to have two kids. We want to be able to both be in careers that we're happy about. And we see ourselves being in for about five to 10 years before we consider doing something else. So we have some conversations and some opportunities right now, whether it's in the team setting, uh, a very unique organization, uh, or even doing our own thing. And in the meantime, I'm coaching and, and writing and speaking and consulting. And so I just, I, I bring that up because it's one thing if you get these pieces of advice or these views from somebody that kind of has been comfortable in a career for a very long time. But I've always viewed it as I don't want to speak on something unless I've lived it. I've taken risks. I've coached my butt off and I've tried to share everything, the good and the bad and the ugly with people. And so, you know what, it was time for this book to come out and, and hopefully inspire others to do the same. Maybe a couple minutes ago when you were talking about why our industry might be in this sort of state that it's in right now, you described, well, it's, you know, thinking about mentorships. And I just think if we were to replace the word mentorship for relationships and how we can't fast track uh, a relationship, especially a relationship of a quality standpoint. And that's, I think, we're, that's what we're kind of seeing right now in the industry with the, the need for bigger and more robust programs is it's cheapening the relationship that a mentor could possibly have with a intern. And I think anything that's built of quality is built with time. And I think this might be a, an interesting segue into maybe the, the four sort of coaching uh, compasses of your book when it talks about relationship and relationship building and the time that it takes and the, the social intelligence. But I would love for you, if you could, and I know we're, we're getting maybe midway into this show here, to just give an, uh, a brief sort of idea of what this coaching compass is, why you kind of made it, and maybe uh, some strategies to improve in one of the four domains. Yeah, no, that's really – so the the coaching compass, right, is just kind of that that classic take on, hey, we all, we all can relate to a compass, and that's something that social science talks about in general. If you want to change behavior, you have to put an image in people's mind's eye. Otherwise, it's very hard for them to carry out relate to, or even, you know, just adopt in, in any kind of way. So what I always say is, you know, the cardinal directions, 
you know, on our coaching compass, so to speak, is signified by four elements of what really makes that conscious coach a great teacher and communicator. And you could even put in like manager, director, or anything there, right, as well, because those those qualities are inherent. And that's buy-in, which is essentially if people want to look at buy-in as trust. And, and there's a whole you know piece as to why I call it buy-in and not just trust. Relationships, social intelligence, and time. So those those replace those those cardinal directions, right? And so buy-in came from the idea that you know if you ask any coach at any level of sport or anybody in business about you know key determinants of of success when they first begin working with a group of athletes or individuals. Within five minutes, you're going to get the term buy-in mentioned, and if not buy-in, trust. They're they're interchangeable. And that wasn't my attempt to like, you know, market some kind of Franken term and say, isn't this cute that I'm calling trust buy-in? I, I use it because it's a term that we're really all just going to keep using, right? You're not going to, no matter how you feel about that term and how salesy the term sounds, right? Because a lot of people think, oh, I'm trying to get buy-in, I'm trying to sell somebody something. Well, Dan Pink, Dan Pink talks about that in his book, you know, to sell as human, he says, we're all involved in non-sales selling. I don't care who you are. You know, you, you are all trying to get somebody to understand and adopt an idea. It, it doesn't matter that you're trying to sell those things to somebody. What matters is, you know, what's the context behind them, right? Like, are they actually going to give them value or are you being snarky, right? Are you like, or how are you going about doing it? So, you know, terms aside, Basically, being able to develop buy-in is is something that is definitely at the forefront of what we do. And I'm going to list these out, and then I'll I'll go talk about you know strategies for them because that's essentially what the book is about. It's about all these strategies, relationships. I mean that term, right? Like an operational definition, so to speak, that includes the interdependence of two individuals or more working together to achieve common goals and a level of understanding between them, right? And, and I give. There's tons of references within the book so people can read about these things. These aren't my definitions. That one in particular is by three re researchers, Knowles, and then I usually mispronounce this, Shanmugam and Lorimer in a 2015 uh, book that they did, and, and that's referenced. So people hopefully have a, a wide range of resources to look at. So, you know, I look at that in, in, the, in the sporting realm or in our world, relationships is, is best described as kind of a social vehicle, right, for performance success. If, if my athletes or the people that we're working with don't really care or feel like I care about them, then they're not going to trust me. So you already see the integration there and the importance of buying in relationships is you can't, the two are inextricably linked, whether you do them well or whether you don't. And, you know, I remember having a, a coach that I worked with at one point in time, brilliant coach, right? Like a lot of times, if I feel like I'm losing my mind from a programming standpoint, I go back and read some of the programs he put together and study them. And it puts me right back on track of where I need to be because he just he knew the X's and O's very, very well. And it, it, it's humbling to go back and review some of his programs. Um, but he sucked at talking to guys. Right. The, only the weight room guys loved him. He couldn't he couldn't relate to skill position players. He couldn't relate to anybody that wasn't deeply passionate about lifting heavy and hard. And he, more importantly, he didn't care to. He didn't really work to try to get them to understand why those things were important. It was just, ah, you know, like lifting heavy, you're soft. So you saw all these great programs. I'm not going to say they went to waste, right? Like they still helped the guys, but they weren't, they weren't realized. The adaptations weren't realized to the height of maybe what they could have been because guys knew that. They knew that at the end of the day, and pardon my language, that he didn't give a shit about it. And, and that's no different, you know, whether it's a business proposition or anything. So, you know, when you look at evolutionary psychology, 
that idea of, of us collaborating and cooperating is what helped elevate us to the top of the food chain, right? If one person or tribe made a big kill, they'd share it with others within that tribe because in the future, they might depend on others to share their food with them. So collaboration is literally a point of survival in what we do, and that's based upon relationships. And you know, if you follow sport culture, that hasn't changed much. Despite not having to go any farther than the nearest Costco for a supersized surplus of food, the, the success of an individual or coach-athlete relationship and teams, and even governing bodies that regulate them, are largely, largely, largely dependent on relationships. And so I give a whole framework. It's what's called uh, the 3 plus 1C uh, framework that's written about uh, in depth in a, in, a, in a text that I use in the appendix of the book. That, that kind of show how these things are manifested and developed in many different capacities. Social intelligence is probably my favorite term of the three. Um, the term that I use in the book was inspired by an internationally recognized social scientist and professor. Again, right, like tired of people calling this stuff the, the art of coaching. There is a science to the art and the science of communication and the science of social intelligence far surpasses the amount of research that we have on strength and conditioning far surpasses it, right? And it's just time for that not to be ignored any further. And this individual that inspired my definition in the book was Ross Honeywell, Dr. Ross Honeywell. And social intelligence, according to him, referred to the exclusive ability of humans to navigate, negotiate, and most importantly, influence these social relationships and environments, right? Now, you've had authors like Daniel Goleman, Robert Greene, E.L. Thorndike, who was really kind of the originator of the term in, in 1920, that have written about this. And all these people have made amazing contributions, far beyond anything I could do, right? I'm not reinventing the wheel. But nobody's discussed how they can use that in the realm of performance coaching or strength and conditioning. And that, that piece right there is essentially what this is a book is about. People have written on this stuff, no doubt. But nobody's written from a performance coaching or strength and conditioning, whatever term you want to use, nobody's written on it in that capacity. You want a Soviet translated manual on plyometrics? We got it. You want something on cluster training? We got it. You want something that teaches you how to navigate these, these super complex power dynamics and hierarchies and, and social environments that we have? Who's doing that, right? And so I, I don't have many things that I think are original that I could contribute, right? Like nobody needs me on Twitter saying that getting a stronger posterior chain enhances, uh, can enhance speed development or the value of eccentrics and possibly reducing hamstring strains and, and helping with tendinopathies. And God knows nobody needs another person talking about the importance of like, uh, you know, certain things on, on, on running speed or even squats or what have you. We have those voices and they're valued. What I looked at is essentially like, where can I contribute? And, and admittedly, that comes at the risk of you getting pigeonholed in those things. I mean, I think if people follow me on these social networks like Instagram or Twitter and they look back, um, you know, I've posted a litany of videos of me training my athletes. You go to my website. I put that front and center. So there's no question about the things that I believe in and there's no hiding. Um, but at the same time, you've got to contribute a unique voice if you want to help. You know, I, this this field saved my life. And so I want to make sure I give something unique to that. So social intelligence comes down to essentially people smarts than social agility. So like the ability to recognize how one social situation differs from another, whether you're talking to a sport coach, an athlete, whether that athlete's from East St. Louis or rural Iowa, and how to adjust our behavior to match those changing demands. 
right? So I've always believed that one of the most overlooked signs of true intelligence is somebody's ability to avoid getting hung up on minor or irrelevant points. Now, don't say that on Twitter, right? Because people will sit there and complain that people speak in abstract on social media, which is comedic in general, because you have 140 characters to say something profound, right? Like that's that that lends itself to abstraction. So um, yeah, there, there's a whole, I mean, there's probably seven to 15 different pages on things that reference social intelligence just out of the gate. Um, time to go into the next part of the coaching compass. And sorry to be long-winded here, Adam, but I don't want people to get, you know, I don't want people to get brief responses. I want them to feel like they understand what, what this is about. Uh, you know, you can explore buy-in, relationships, social intelligence, but the reality is, is time is always going to be the trump card, so to speak, as you, you can't rush this stuff. You can't rush trust. You can't rush influence. If you do, you're going to push people away from you and you're going to come off as that snarky, you know, salesman or, or more importantly, kind of that desperate coach that's like, hey, man, like let this thing play out, right? Like everybody's had that overeager boyfriend or girlfriend in their past that like, yeah, you guys liked each other, but they couldn't just let it sit, right? Let's not rush this. And as silly as that sounds, that's not different than these kinds of relationships. You have to let, we slow cook our athletes in terms of their physical, physiological development. You have to do the same thing from a psychosocial standpoint, right? And and having that lack of patience and almost too much of an intense sense of urgency early on in my career hurt me because I was in a position where I'm training Navy SEALs or pro athletes at 24 or 25. And the first thing I thought I should do in order to get them to listen to me is prove how smart I was. So I'd sit there and explain my training methods. I'd talk about how each exercise was doing this and that. And, and some of these guys were just like, dude, that's cool. But like, we got it. Like, we just want to train, you know? And I realized that, you know, I, I, I needed to quit doing that if I was ever going to develop true relationships because it came off. It showed how really insecure I was as a young coach, just trying to, to, to spout how smart I was, right? Like every five seconds, I was trying to hand somebody some research. I was trying to show somebody these things. And, and that's great in our field, right? If you have an awesome paper, Adam, like on stuff that you post, like I'd love to see it. But I had to learn that my athletes weren't motivated always by the same things. And I had to balance that equation. So those four pieces and how to understand the background of them, how to leverage them, how to develop them, and how to utilize them are all part of the very first chapter of the book. And then specifics are teased out more as we dig deeper. That, that was a big piece. I did not want this book to be something where people read and they felt like, yeah, there's some good stories in there. There's some good quotes, but nothing I can use. This book was centered around tools that people can hopefully use to, from day one. So that's the coaching compass in a nutshell. You know, and I, I think that this book is probably, this book is needed outside of just strength conditioning. And I think the topics that you cover in this book easily transcends the, the microcosm that is sport because everybody can get and become even a better communicator, a better listener, develop richer relationships, spend more time. And, and as I think back on the, the mentors in my professional life, the people that's been closest to me are the ones without without knowing the four components here, are the ones that navigated those four disciplines incredibly well. They spent the time with me and rich time. And, and then you shared it earlier on just about it's, it's the invisible moments. It's the thousand invisible mornings where 
It's the time that you sit behind a desk at the end of a workday that you spend with your colleagues or, or close friends and tell stories or reminisce. It's not what you might necessarily put up on, on Instagram or put on Twitter that helps bond a relationship together. And you can't cheapen that by artificially creating uh, those moments. You can't rush it by trying to be over eager with trying to drive the relationship. You know, it, it takes time. It takes that slow cooking nature. I'd love to kind of, as we come towards an end of this, I would love to hear from you about what you think you would have done differently. If you could rewind the clock and you're a young coach, you're just starting off your first internship. What is that a piece of advice that you would give that 19, 20, 21 year old coach as they're entering into this field that seems, you know, bombarded by the need of, of mastery of Microsoft Excel by GPS, accelerometry, data monitoring. What would be that piece of advice that you would tell that younger coach? That's a really good question. I think I know that I would give them the same advice that I try to continually live by in my own development daily, right? Because even though this is my 10th, 11th year doing this, there's times where I feel, you know, insecure about those things, right? Like I can't get a bunch of gym awares, right? Like, so I hear people talk about, you know, velocity-based measuring and I'll, I'll use push only to see people on Twitter say, well, this isn't valid, this isn't reliable, this isn't this. And it doesn't matter what you say. Like I have to use what I can use and I have to adapt it for my for, for my situation, right? Or um, Excel, nobody taught me that usually when you come up under that undergraduate kind of setting, you, you kind of see the template, you grow up under that, you learn how to adapt it. I had to create and adjust and refine and, and kind of learn Excel on my own. I admittedly didn't really have a mentor. I had situational mentors, people that taught me along the way what I did and what I didn't want to be, but I didn't grow up under any one system, despite my time at API and despite my time in the collegiate setting or what have you, that really just showed me the way universally, right? So it, I felt that pressure. I felt that pressure to constantly have to learn all the, uh, man, how do you do a pivot table? Now I have to do this. Now I have to. So I'd say there's three things that essentially it comes down to you have to remember. One, more than a third of the noise out there, you just have to ignore. There's so much information out there that you think that's a good thing. The reality is the vast majority of it is white noise. And, you know, you get bombarded, right? Think how much the – think how often the research comes out now. It seems like every week nearly I get an email that, the oh, the January issue is dropped or the NSCA journal. Now it's this. Now it's that. And then there's, then there's a research quarterly. Then there's all these other pieces. And, you know, no matter who you are, unless you're – Unless you're not, unless you don't have a family, unless you don't have a life, unless you don't have any of those things, you're not reading all of this. And I can say that because that's a distinct difference between me as a graduate assistant or or young apprentice coach. And now I've gotten better at filter, filtering things, right? Like I'll stay up with the research, but I don't lose it in the same OCD mindset that I used to if I missed one of the one of the reviews. Because I know if it's good stuff, one, I'm going to hear about it from other smart people I surround myself with. Or it's going to be such a pervasive kind of topic that it's going to come up, you know, when I'm browsing social media or when I'm doing this, and then I can review it. So by nature, like, I've become better at using my environment to help me filter out what's real, what's noise, what's flash in the pan, all that. So one, don't don't let your insecurities get the best of you. Everybody feels that 
oh my God, am I still up to date kind of thing. And by and large, listen, no matter what comes out, the physiology of our body, we're going to learn more about it, no doubt. And you've got to stay on top of it. But there's not going to be any big paradigm shifting thing where we find out progressive overload, stressing the system, resting strategically, you know, the proper, you know, the, the benefits of good sleep as you espouse uh, widely, Adam, and, and nutrition. Uh, by and large, those pillars are staying, right? So don't worry if you didn't hear about the, the most recent adaptation of floating uh, periodization model that came out from, you know, God knows what country or what blogger or what have you at this point in time. So one, ignore the noise. Two, be good to people. There are so many people that just based on where you work, uh, or what school are you with, what pro team, who have you coached, you know, what you've written, how many followers do you have? There are so many people that gauge the importance of a relationship based on that kind of stuff, as opposed to just true competence and somebody being a good person. And I promise you, if you step on somebody's toes now or you try to act high and mighty, it will come back and bite you in the ass. It absolutely will. I've had people that threatened me in the past or did this and that that ended up asking for jobs. I've had to rely on other relationships that I've built to uh, you know, uh, vet whether a job was worth me taking or not. Or, or if a young coach needed a, a reference, he had to reach out to people. If you are not good to people in this field and if you are not humble in this field – you are going to get outcasted in some way, shape, or form or another. And it, it's sad. I mean, I've seen it to former interns of mine that have gone on to coach in the NBA or NFL, and immediately, you know, they, they kind of get this big-time persona. I was at Coach's Conference uh, just recently in January and was talking to a coach that had been having trouble finding. He was a young coach, and he hasn't been able to find a, a, a really steady job the past two years despite having two master's degrees at CSCS and, and is a very just – good person. And I watched him talk to two coaches, you know, in the collegiate setting and they, they were sitting there chopping it up. And I was having a conversation with somebody else. And the minute those coaches asked him where he was coaching and he told them a private facility and not, you know, Alabama or not Southern Miss or not Nebraska, they, they were like, Oh, cool. And that's that, that was the conversation because apparently now this coach had nothing to offer them because he didn't have a logo behind it. Be good to people. It will come back and bite you if you're not. So uh, the third one is that you, you just got to stick true to what your identity is. I think a lot of people can get caught up in trying to be this kind of, you know, the radio uh, strength and conditioning is and, and strength and conditioning is like the radio now. Right. Where people every five seconds, they want something new. Right. You talk about speed development. OK, now they're sick of that. You talk about strength and conditioning or, or more strength power oriented stuff. All right. Now they're sick of that. You talk about psychosocial stuff. Uh, now they're sick of that. Uh, no matter what you talk about, somebody's going to criticize you because it's not the song they want to hear on the radio. And what you've got to learn is don't worry about that. Share the information that you find valuable. Share the information that you think you would have liked to have known back in the day and hold true to your values. That's a Roy Disney quote that I have inscribed everywhere in my apartment is when your values are clear to you, making decisions becomes easier. And your values should be one of patience, your value should be one of trust. Your value should be, should be one of relationships. And your value should be one of just knowing how to communicate and, and, and benefit those around you in an adaptable way. And the irony of that is those are the same values that comprise our coaching compass. And being a better coach and being a good person are synergistically and inextricably linked in every way imaginable. And people need to remember that first and foremost over everything else in what we do.
I think that's timeless advice that any coach, any person should walk away from and start trying to apply today. Brad, man, I'm not going to take much more of your time because I think you've you've dropped enough knowledge bombs and shared enough of your wisdom and and strategies and what you've learned over this labor of love over the last couple of years as you're writing this book. Your book, Conscious Coaching, comes out March 11th. If I was a CEO, I'm a teacher, uh, I own my own business, whatever, whatever discipline, and I am browsing let's say Amazon right now, and I come across your book and you got 30 seconds to say, why should I click buy it now button at Amazon? What would you say to them? I'll do it in less than 10 seconds because no matter what you do or what profession you're in, people are the ultimate performance variable. I love it. I'd leave it at that. And you know that that's enough that states clearly the mission behind the book and also establishes some intrigue as what the hell do you mean by that? But it's pretty simple, right? It's it, and it's not, in my opinion, it's not trite. It's something that's true. No matter what you're doing, no matter what data you have to suggest anything, any outcome, the reality is people are the ultimate performance variable. And if you don't understand them, you're not going to get the best benefits out of your business, out of your performance programming, out of your relationships, you name it. So that is, uh, that, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Brett, I want to thank you for spending your time and sharing what is otherwise probably a busy, busy next couple weeks uh, of your life as you're trying to launch this thing and get this thing out there. Thanks so much for for coming on today and sharing some of your wisdom and your path and and what you found to be resonating moments in your life that set you up for the success that you have, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do, Adam. I appreciate it, man. You, uh, You keep me sharp. Iron sharpens iron for sure. And and uh, in the multitude of voices out there, yours is always refreshing, valued, and, and you know, just authentic. So thanks again for having me on. The pleasure is all mine. Brett, thank you so much. And I look forward to touching, uh, touching base here soon. Yep, absolutely. Talk soon. I want to thank today's guest, Brett Bartholomew, for coming on the Decoding Excellence show and investing his time with me and sharing some of the wisdoms that he has learned through his coaching career. Brett has a book called Conscious Coaching coming out March 11th, 2017. You can pick it up on amazon.com. Brett is a good guy in this industry, and I absolutely believe he deserves to get the recognition he has received so far. I would encourage you, if you're interested in any of the topics covered throughout this show, to research his book and go out and purchase it. It's supporting a good cause. It's supporting a good man. And I cannot thank Brett enough for jumping on this show. You can find Brett on Twitter and Instagram at coach underscore Brett B or his website, BartholomewStrength.com. And like always, this is an exploration of the intangibles, the tactics, the tools, the strategies and techniques that goes into decoding excellence.